0: Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business
1: and finally live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Perrin. Welcome back to the Authority Hacker Podcast. Today I have a blogger with us who I've been following for, I don't know, believe it or not. Five years, something like right. that, something crazy. Before yeah. I was ever blogging on my own, I was That's like I was,
0: 20 in internet years.
1: Yeah, I know with all the changes and everything. But we have Bjork from Pinch of Yum, who you may know his wife better, Lindsay. But so it's Bjork and, Lin- and Lindsay Ostrom. If you don't know them, you surely know their website, Pinch of Yum. It's one of the oldest income reports that I could find. So there's lots of blogs out there, publishing income reports. Pinch of Young was doing it before a lot of other people. So we're excited to have Bjork on. He's going to tell us a little bit about using ad optimization platforms and using sponsored content to monetize a blog. So Bjork, thanks for being with us. How are you?
0: Yeah, Aaron, doing great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's going to be fun to chat about some of this stuff. And any time that I get to go on another podcast is really fun because we do a podcast as well. And it's. I'm always I was on the other end, and as you know, it's like not easy to be the one like thinking of questions and then thinking of responses. So I have a cup of coffee. I'm just going to sit back here <laughs> and let you come up with all the questions. It's going to be the best hour of my day.: I've already pulled my hair out for the both of us,
1: so all right, should be easy. First. For the people who somehow may not know your website, just tell us what Pinch of Yum is and what market it's in and basically what the mission of the site
0: is. Yeah, you bet. And it's funny that you say that because it's like there's these niches. And so like in the food blog niche, people would maybe know who we are. But then it's like anything in the internet where once you get outside of that, nobody has any clue. So my assumption anywhere we go or anywhere that I talk about Pinch of Yum and the businesses Lindsay and I have built is that like nobody has any clue. Uh, and that's the weird thing too, is like we can live in these worlds where like we're posting to social media and responding to emails and like everybody has an assumption of who we are or knows in some way. And we we don't want to assume that we know. So my assumption is that nobody knows. I'll do the kind of quick high level overview. Lindsay started pinch of Yum in 2010. So we've been doing this for probably seven years. Yeah, seven years in April. So going on eight, obviously. And at the time, she was just interested in posting recipes to social media and got to the point where she's like, ah, maybe there'd be a place that would be better for these to live. And so we started looking into starting a blog. And I was super excited about it because I was always interested in websites and online business and kind of this entire world of building a business online. And I was listening to a lot of people at that time that were producing podcasts around that and reading books around it. And one of the books that I was reading was. Gary Vaynerchuk had a book called Crush It. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about this idea of a worm farm. And he's like, if you really love worms, you can do worm farm blog and then you'll get worm farm sponsors. And so I was drinking the Kool-Aid and I was like, ah, this is totally possible. And Lindsay was like, eh, maybe. Like I'm willing to kind of test this out and give it a try. And so I kind of handled the, the back end stuff for it, setting up a blog. We did it on Tumblr at the time, getting a URL set up. And then Lindsay really has all of the credit due for like the content creation, which when it comes down to it, like that's the hard part. So she's been working hard for the past seven years, creating content every week. She does recipe posts, but she also posts about kind of not necessarily lifestyle, but just posts about non-recipe things and is willing to kind of engage with her audience outside of just posting recipes as well. So that's one of the things that Lindsay's known for. So that's kind of the quick story for Pinch of Yum. Uh, We transitioned into doing it full time in 2014 after we were spent a year abroad in the philippines and have been doing it full time ever since and growing it slowly but surely along the way and i guess maybe we can talk about your street
1: cred for all of our dorky marketing sure. audience members out there and you guys may have seen this the in the blog post that i wrote that was profiling successful bloggers but pinch of yum has millions of visits a month. So I was using, you know, traffic estimation tools mm-hmm. and kind of trying to reverse engineer you guys. Sure. But in your last income report that you published, you were getting like 3 million sessions a month or something. Yep.
0: That's And about then, right. And I'm okay sharing those numbers too, if you want to ask. Yeah. was hard to know on podcasts. So we get, at this point, we get on Pinch of Yum 4 to 5 million page views a month. And that's pretty consistent. It'll peak in kind of November, December, January. So it's people that are making things for Thanksgiving and then kind of the Christmas holiday season. And then it's people trying to make up for all of that eating they did in January by eating healthy. So that that's kind of the peak season for us in terms of traffic. Peak season in terms of income is quarter four. So October, November, December.
1: And I know you published income reports for a long time. That's how I found you guys. The last one I read or the last one you published was in November 2016 and you were making upwards of like $70,000 a month for that Mm -hmm. month anyway. And I know that's a big month for you. So you can tell us how much you're making now if you want to, but I'm really curious like why you started publishing income reports as a food blog and then why you stopped?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I can answer that question. And it really, the response is it really depends. So in terms of revenue, strictly speaking revenue, it'll be anywhere from Probably 60 to 100 is probably the average range that we see for the blog. One of the things that we're trying to do this year is be more intentional about putting that money back into the business. So that's one of the interesting things with income reports is like, you really have to dig in and see like, is this a report on revenue? Is it on profit? Like how much expenses go into it? And one of the things that we always wanna be really intentional to do is say like, here's the income that we're getting from it as opposed to just revenue, even with businesses, that's true. I feel like it's always important to peel those layers back. And one of the strategies or one of the things we're trying to focus on this year is taking a lot of that revenue, putting it back in. So intentionally lowering our profit margin, strictly speaking, just because it's like taxes are, especially Minnesota, California is another state, but like taxes just take out so much of that chunk of profit from a business. Mm So we feel like the safest place to put that is back in the business and we don't have any, you know, massive purchases that we want to make. So to answer your question, probably sixty to a hundred thousand, the range depending on what season it is, if sponsored content payments come in, if we have a contract with a brand or anything like that, in terms of the income reports, the reason that we decided to do those was when we were starting out, so this would have been probably a year into the process of building the blog. the blog didn't introduce the interest for me; I always had the interest of building a business online, but what the blog did do was put in front of us these two potential outcomes. One is like, and I always envision it as like the devil and the angel on your shoulder, like that, that poof up when you have like to make this decision. <laughs> it wasn't really a decision for us, but it was really two voices that I would see online. And one was somebody saying, you know what? It's, if you're going to work in the food world, especially online, it should be out of passion because it's not going to be possible for you to create an income from like a food blog or posting about recipes. And on the other shoulder was, these influencers and people like Gary Vaynerchuk who are saying like, no, you can create something and it could be anything like a, a recipe blog. Great. Like worm farm. Great. And so for us, the income report was really a, an experiment in saying, is this possible? And the first few ones, I think we called them the money, the food blog money-making experiment, which is like <laughs> such an unoriginal name, <laughs> but that's really what it was for us. It was an experiment in testing it out and, what we realized as we continually invested time and energy into learning about these things that we're going to talk about, ad optimization, sponsor content, affiliate marketing as well, as we intentionally put time and energy into that. We started to figure out ways to not only build traffic, but then create an income from that. So It really came out of this experimentation, this hope to do an experiment that would turn out for the better, that we'd actually be able to do it, but we really didn't know. But What we found was it was successful in building an income. And uh, the food blog money-making experiment, the result was, yes, it is possible. (laughs) And why'd you stop? For us, the biggest thing was, I feel like there was a disconnect from what it was in the first three years to what it became in the, the last couple years. And in the first three years, it really was this experiment thing where it was like, hey, we changed this and it worked, or we're using this ad network and it performed a lot better. Once it got to the end, I think, What I felt like it was doing was not as beneficial. And I think that one of the things I'm acutely aware of with the internet is like, how do the things that we produce and the things that we say and the content that we're creating, how does that impact other people? And if we were doing that on strictly a business-related website, I think it would have been one thing. But I think because we were talking about income and business and blogging on a platform being Pinch of Yum that wasn't the main avenue for that, that there started to be more dissonance, especially as it became more successful as a blog. Like it wasn't this like scrappy startup. We were starting to hire employees and, and the things that we were talking about, like the actionable items became less of like, here's an, a tip for how to rank higher. And it became more like the world we were living in was like hiring people or like HR or payroll. Like you shift from being maker to manager. And It also felt like it became less relevant as it became more of a business. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the
1: more tactical stuff that I love about Pinch of Yum, but to put it in some context first, and because I know people are going to ask about it if I don't ask you, I'd like to just get the macro timeline of Pinch of Yum, if -hmm. we can just kind of look at it from a bird's eye view, start from zero and go to today and then just really touch on the growth points on that timeline and sort of the major milestones so people can get a feel for your journey from starting it to where
0: you are now. Sure, and when I talk about this, one of the things that I would love for people to keep in their mind is this idea and this phrase that I call who, not how many. And that's really been a huge part of our growth. And what that means is when you're starting out, what matters isn't necessarily how many people are seeing your content, it's really important to create awesome content because it's about who sees your content, not how many. And if you focus on the who as opposed to the how many, the how many will come a little bit later. So an example of that, so when we first started the blog, it was the traditional, like, you can count on one hand how many people are coming and, you know, it's people that you know because you gave them the link via email. It's your mom, your dad, and your sister. And and that was really the story of Pinch of Yum, is that's how it started. We didn't have a lot of traction but Lindsay became really interested in creating high quality content for a recipe and a food blog. A huge part of that is the photos. So she got really interested in that first year, those first two years and figuring out how to take really good photos along with creating and crafting really good recipes. Obviously that can translate into whatever industry it is that people are listening to or whatever industry that the people that are listening are in. But for us, it was recipes and it was photos. And so she really was intentional about figuring out how to do that well. And One of the first really big points of growth for us was when somebody, a really popular Pinterest user in maybe 2012, shared one of Lindsay's recipes. And it was actually the founder of Pinterest. It was his mom. And I think what happened was like when he was first starting it, she was maybe one of the suggested follows. So she had like millions of followers, either that or she was just like the ultimate supporter of her son, but she shared a recipe and that was this huge spike for us and that that continued kind of as a waterfall effect to go into other Pinterest profiles and other people shared it. So we really saw a long-term benefit to that one single share. And we've seen that kind of across the board where we'll have growth points and then plateaus and growth points and plateaus. And that was really our first growth point into a new plateau. So that was maybe 2012. So to put it into periods, 2010 to 2012 was kind of like the hustle and see if this will work phase. I was really interested in building this into something but didn't know if it would become something. I think the 2012 to 2014 phase, so this would be year two-ish to year four-ish, was when we were like, okay, we can see that this is actually something but we don't know how big of a something it's gonna become. During that point, it was really about doubling down on the content creation, continuing to figure out how to improve the content creation craft while also starting to implement some of the more strategic things, like what are some SEO or just like how do you do SEO in general? It wasn't even like super SEO tricks. It was like, how do we update the file names of photographs in a way that is communicating to Google what those are about? And how do we be intentional to pick keywords for a recipe? How can we be strategic about picking the recipes that we're posting about as well? So that was really 2012 to 2014, and in 2014, that was the point where we were both still working full-time jobs or part-time. we were each like 20 to 30 hours a week. And our income from the site had surpassed our income from our normal jobs. And so for us, it was, we had built this bridge where we said, okay, we can see that this is consistent enough. We've had this long enough where it would make sense for us to transition into doing this full-time. So after four-ish years to transition into doing this full-time to make that jump and to feel safe about doing it because we had a little bit of history as well. So 2014 until now for us has been really taking the time and energy that we have and investing that back into the site as well as bringing people on and building a small but a mighty team. And that's really helped us to see continued growth. The team aspect for us has been kind of that next stage. And that's still kind of at the point where we're at right now.
1: Super impressive growth, really big site. Now let's zero in on some of the stuff that I really love about Pinch of Yum and some of the stuff that I wanted to learn about personally when I was writing the profile of you and your website when I was doing the successful blogger blog Mm -hmm. post that we did over on Authority Hacker. The first thing I want to talk about is AdThrive. We have audience that's largely SEO affiliate marketers. There are people in our audience, of course, who do lots of display ad stuff, but not very many who are quite as successful as you. So in the last income report that you published in November, I know that AdThrive, which is an ad optimization platform, made up over half of your income. And in that month, it was about Mm $50,000. So I want to talk about AdThrive as a platform and I want to talk about it as a way to monetize your blog or to sort of maximize and optimize your display ad revenue. So the first question I have for you, just for the folks who don't know, maybe you could tell us what Ad Thrive is and on a basic level, how it works.
0: Sure. And I'll do a, a brief history of ads, not that I'm the ultimate expert, but just as an explanation of why this is a beneficial type of partnership to have or tool to use if you are doing display advertising. So way back with ads, display ads, it was kind of the handshake deal. So it was like, you know, you'd go to a brand and the brand would come to you, the publisher, and they'd say, how much do you charge for ads? And you'd say... I charge $10 CPM, so $10 for every 1,000 impressions of that ad. And you'd shake on it, and then you would display that ad on your site. Or maybe you would say, I charge $1,000 for one month in my sidebar. And that was kind of how it was done originally. What ended up happening was ad networks would come, started to be put into place. And those ad networks took the place of that handshake deal. So instead of shaking hands with a brand and saying, all right, we have a deal, let's do it. An ad network would come and say, hey, if you just put a little bit of ad code on your site, we will fill that. We'll do the handshaking for you. We'll take a cut of it, but we're going to fill that inventory for you. So you're going to be able to create an income without having to manage a bunch of these relationships. And they took a cut of that. Now, the issue with that was you would then have some inventory that wasn't filled because they had so many deals that they could fill, but then let's say that you know you had 10 million impressions on your site and they only had deals for 5 million for that month. So then you'd have this remnant inventory, this ad inventory that's left over. So then you'd partner with other ad networks that didn't pay quite as much to backfill that empty inventory. And so you'd build this kind of waterfall where you'd have two, maybe three different ad networks that would fill in for each other. So the first one is the best paying ad network. And then after that, another one would come in. And then if they didn't have anything, then you'd have one that would be all backfill and it would fill 100% of the time, but wouldn't pay as much. AdSense would be an example of that. They would almost always fill, but it wouldn't pay as much. But what started to happen was, there's ad optimization companies that started to come forward and say, hey, we can start to take this on. We can manage the relationship between all of these different ad networks, so it was kind of like ad management. And they said, we can do a better job of doing this than you, blogger, who's spending all your time doing content creation. We'll figure out which ad networks pay the most, when we should show them, and we're gonna be really intentional to build that waterfall out. And so this is kind of phase three of the ads. And so that was how Ad Thrive, the company Ad Thrive started, is they started as one of those companies. Now there's since been a stage four where at the ad world has shifted in a way where a company like AdThrive is able to completely take over our inventory and get a really high premium on that, not only due to relationships that they have with brands, but also due to this new shift in advertising where it's real-time bidding. And this is getting a little bit 201 with ads, but real-time bidding works in a way where, let's say Bjork Ostrom is browsing the web and he goes to Bleacher Report, he goes to CNN, he goes to Fox News just to get both sides of the story. He goes to Mashable. And a profile is being built on who I am as a consumer. And therefore, when I go to the next site, let's say I go to Star Tribune, which is the Twin Cities newspaper, there's going to be an ad company that is going to bid on that impression based on me coming in, based on the history of what I've done and what I've browsed and the content that I've consumed. So that's really the world where advertising lives right now, where people aren't necessarily working with individual websites as much, but they're going to purchase these packages where they're bidding on users. And they're doing that based on their search history. So that's a company like AdThrive is a company that optimizes that process and is able to come in and manage our ad inventory in order to help us get a premium for the ads that we're displaying on the blog. That's a whole lot of content.
1: (laughs) No, yeah. No, that's good. So if you're at home on your computer and you want to look at some of these companies, the two main ones that I know of are AdThrive and Ezoic. We'll certainly have links to those in the show notes. I'm wondering how these play with really highly user-focused networks that are following you around and are allowing companies to bid on you based on where you've been, like
0: Crit.io. Are you using them? No, So For us, one of the things that we're doing is AdThrive just takes on everything that we have. So they're doing our pre-roll video ads. They're doing our display ads. They're managing all of that content. They're not doing any of our sponsored content, but they're taking on all of the ad inventory management that we have. So that's the only company that we're working with.
1: So AdThrive is doing it all now. I want to look at what Pinch looked like before. And then what it looks like now with AdThrive. So you're doing all the handshaking yourself. You are doing all of the ad management yourself. And you're making X amount of money. Now you're on AdThrive. And what does it look like? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it depends. And I can share some numbers here. It depends on, number one, how many ads you're showing, where those ads are showing. It also depends on the quality of the views. So one of the really big things with ads is viewability. And it's really important to have ads that are actually viewed. So that's why you see certain sites shifting to having ads within the content itself as opposed to in the sidebar. And that's really important for mobile because obviously on mobile, you're not gonna have a sidebar. So they need to have those ads in there. And viewability, an ad is technically viewable when half of the ad is what, on the page for more than a second. So that they count that as a viewable ad. And they're starting to brands or companies or BR agencies, whoever's doing these buyouts, are starting to place a priority on viewability because they can see that as a metric. So in terms of what it looked like before and what it looks like now, before I wouldn't have exact RPMs or like RPM stands for the amount of money you make per 1000 page views. But right now for Pinch of Yum, that'll average anywhere from like 11 to on the really high end, it would be 14. It's not uncommon for bloggers to get upwards of maybe 16. And that would be intentional ad management as well as having ads that are more viewable. So like a sticky sidebar, one where you scroll and the ad sticks in the sidebar on desktop or maybe putting it in really prominent places. So a recipe site, that would mean including an ad within the post itself. But I feel like that that number, that $12 RPM or you could say 13 or $14 RPM is a really realistic number. So if you have a thousand page views a day, you know that you could get $12 from your site. And you can also start to play with those numbers and say like, oh, that's not very much if I'm an affiliate site and I know that I can convert at $100 per 1,000 page views. And you can start to play with those numbers a little bit. For a site that's high traffic, like a food and recipe site, ads work pretty good. For a site that's low traffic, extremely niche, and has a product offering, ads probably aren't gonna be the best.
1: That's a great segue into one of my questions that I hope is more actionable for people. And that was when should bloggers start thinking about experimenting with AdThrive or similar platforms. So our audience is lots of us have small blogs. Lots of us have medium sized blogs that are getting maybe a few thousand visits a day. Yep. So based on your journey coming from a small blog, going to a really big blog, what's your advice there?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple things that you need to factor into the equation. One of those things is Is it something that you're excited about doing? Like, Are you somebody that loves to geek out about numbers and RPM and the amount of income you can get from a thousand pages a day? If you are, it's probably gonna be more enjoyable for you to implement that on the earlier end. If you're somebody who's not as excited about that, I would step back and say, okay, let's wait until I get to a point where I can really justify this as a substantial amount. And I think that's up to you, whatever that would be. I would say it would probably the $300, $400, $500 a month mark is a substantial amount of money, you can start to crunch that and say like, okay, this is a car payment or this is like part of my mortgage payment. At that point, it's probably worth it to say, it would be worth it for me to implement ads on my site. So what does that translate into in terms of page views a day? I would say maybe in the two, three, 4,000 page views a day mark is probably you could start to say, hey, it might be worth it for me to implement ads on my site. Again, huge disclaimer, ads are gonna, while they're able to be passive and create an income, without you having to quote, unquote, sell anything, they are going to impact the user experience. So if you have a site that's more optimized for conversions, then putting ads on that isn't going to necessarily be a good business move, even though you're able to create some income from that, it's probably going to lower the conversion rate that you have, it's going to slow down your site like crazy, ads are super slow. And so you want to really weigh the positives and negatives with that. If you're a strictly content driven site, then ads make sense. But if you have a product offering, if you're doing affiliate stuff, then you're probably going to want to wait a little bit and be strategic about where you show those ads.
1: And on the back end, what sort of tools do you need to put something like Ad Thrive on your site? Do they give you a plugin? Are you using third party plugins to manage like the ad codes or whatever? Sure. What does it look like there?
0: Yep. So with any of these ad management companies, what they're going to do is they're going to in some way, shape or form help you with the implementation of it. So I don't know what the onboarding looks like for a company like AdThrive right now, but essentially what it would be, and for us and for most bloggers that they work with, I would assume, they're gonna be coming on and they're gonna be helping you set this up. So they're gonna be installing a plugin that they have, they're gonna be optimizing it. You're not gonna have to do a lot of the management on your side, you'll probably have somebody that's helping you with that. I'm not sure if that's across the board, but I'm pretty positive. Even if you're just in the beginning stages with your blog and you get accepted to AdThrive, there's an application process. Uh, If you get accepted, then they're going to have maybe not a full-time ad manager, but somebody who's available on the customer support team to help you out.
1: And what about maximizing profits? So we've got AdThrive installed on our site and we want to make sure we are doing stuff that really helps us make money with these ads. So I wonder, since you make most of your money with ads and you're making most of your money with AdThrive's, how are you blogging and how are you running your business so that you're getting as much out of that revenue stream as possible?
0: Sure. Yeah. And just to pull back the picture a little bit. So we have Pinch of Yum, and then we also have a membership site, Food Blogger Pro. So in terms of how we create content, we think about those two as the primary sources of income. So there are some pages where we're really strategic about not showing ads and really focusing in instead on the content side of things that points people towards Food Blogger Pro. But in terms of optimizing for the ads, it comes down to a usability and an income potential equation. And the more ads that you show, the more income you're going to be able to create, but the less usability benefit you're going to get from that, or the less usable your site is going to be. So the more ads you show, the slower it's going to load. Or It's less enjoyable to see an ad before a video than to see a video that doesn't have an ad before it. But all of those would be things that help you to create more income. So in terms of optimizing strictly for income, the things that you'd wanna focus on is the number of ads, the viewability of those ads, so making sure that people actually see them. And you do that by either making them sticky, so if they're in a desktop, then they're scrolling through and it sticks to the sidebar, including it within the content itself, And that would be true both for videos and for ads themselves. So sometimes you'll see that when you scroll through a post, the video will slide off and it will go into the sidebar. One of the reasons they do that is because that allows the ad to play so you get a fully viewable ad. So it really comes down to making the ads visible and the number of ads that you're showing, both on mobile and desktop. That would be the other thing that would be important to point out is Your site should be mobile-optimized, right? We know that. But if you're going to use ads, those also should be mobile-optimized. So you should be showing a footer ad on your mobile page if you want to be optimizing the ads. That's a really big income earner because everybody's going to see it. It's very viewable, and it's right in front of people when they come to that page. So big things are viewability and the number of ads that you have. And then I would say last would be the quality of your content. So not publishers, not bloggers, but brands. And people that are purchasing ads have an idea from metrics how quality the content is. How sticky is it? Are people engaging with it? And they also know the type of people, like we talked about before, based on your history that are coming and consuming that content. So creating quality content is a huge part of it because you're going to be able to earn more from that if you have a site that has quality visitors to it as opposed to people that come and bounce off right away.
1: So touching on the number of ads, how crazy can we get? Can we put 100 ads on a page? Or is there an upper limit that sort of serves as a best practice benchmark?
0: Yeah, I think there would be an upper limit. And there's not a hard and fast rule. But I would say the upper limit is probably has to do with the platform that you're on. So mobile versus desktop industry norms. So as industry norms shift, people become more or less okay with ads and how they're presented. And I think it also has to do with the number of ads that are viewable within any given time. And I think it's a soft skill in knowing what that is. But let's say that you have a footer ad on a desktop as well as a ad within the content itself, that probably is not gonna throw people off. But then if you also have, let's say, an ad that is autoplay video in the bottom right corner, like when ads start to stack on each other, and I think people have experienced that or felt that before, I think that gets to the point where it starts to impact usability and people start to feel that and respond to that in a negative way. Now let's talk about sponsored content. This is like this
1: weird mystical unicorn for me because I had no idea before I started profiling all these successful bloggers that people were making money with sponsored posts. Mm -hmm. And when I talked to my circle about it, the standard response and this will give you an idea for how SEO-minded we are, is like, okay, sure. well, but aren't they no following links? Why would anybody buy that? Yeah. <laughs> and so it was this whole new world for me. And you, the, in the last income report you published, uh, reported that you're making upwards of20,000 dollars from sponsored content per month. So I want to ask about a sponsored content, and we'll get into some of the logistics here in a second. But mostly, before we start getting into that tactical stuff, I want to ask to ask you to explain what a sponsored post is and then who's buying them if you can't even get links from
0: them. Sure. Yeah. And I think, again, to preface this before we jump into it, a phrase that I think is important to understand is attention economics. And a huge part of what brands are buying isn't necessarily boost in SEO. I know that definitely exists, especially in the world that you and I live in. Like We're acutely aware of that. But I think there's an entirely different world that people live in where the most important thing for them is attention and where are people paying attention and where are eyeballs at. And just like a a commercial on an NFL game isn't going to result in any SEO benefit. If we work with a brand like Almond Breeze, which is an almond milk, they know they're not going to get an SEO boost, but their ultimate benefit isn't to necessarily, or at least for this division within the company or the PR company that we're working with. Their goal isn't to get, show up higher for almond milk, even though that's probably somewhere in the company somebody's trying to do that. Their goal is to get impressions on a campaign that they're doing, whether that be through social or commercials or billboards or whatever it would be. So understanding attention economics is really huge in understanding sponsored content. And s- simply put, what a brand is trying to do is they're trying to get as much exposure for the specific product or the brand itself that they're working with And one of the things that they're realizing is people are paying a lot of attention to the things on their phone. And if you, one of my favorite things to do is when I travel, if I'm sitting in the back, which I feel like I always am, I'm like the worst seat travel picker. Like I always end up with like the second to last or last row next to the bathrooms. But the benefit of that is like when I get off the plane, I get to look and see when people open their phone, what are they opening it to? And almost everybody's gonna be opening it to some social media platform. Or checking some site online somewhere on their phone. Like they're not going and listening to voicemails right away. Some people are. But the first thing that people look at is their social accounts. There's a ton of attention that's given to social right now. And of that, I think one of the most important is Instagram. So what does that look like? Well, a brand is coming to us and they're saying, we see that you have, you know, it's 450,000 followers on Instagram. And we know that on average, if you post, let's say, a video, that maybe 50,000 people will watch that and it will have 200,000 impressions or something like that. So we'll pay you in order to get some attention, some exposure for our brand or for our product or for a certain campaign that we're doing. And that translates for them into general awareness, but also a lot of times it'll translate into people purchasing that product. So simply put, it's a way to influence people. Another way to say sponsor content is influencer marketing. So it's working with people that are able to influence. It's a marketing channel using individuals or content creators to leverage their platform and the attention that they have to give exposure to the brand. Another example is Buzzfeed. They don't do any display ads. The only type of advertising they do is sponsor content or native advertising. Uh, there's not any ads. These are all partnerships that they have with people and they're working with them in order to get a, a you know, payment in order to produce that content.
1: And just to help people visualize what I was looking at PintoVM to sort of see how you guys do it, sponsored content Mm -hmm. in the form of a blog post would be, say, a recipe for, I don't know, this is one that I'm actually making, like, tomorrow, for, like, baked oatmeal. And it'll say, here's what you do. You want to get some baked oatmeal, some dried fruit, whatever. And also, you need to get some almond breeze almond milk. And it'll be, like, branded and stuff. So, for the blog, is that kind of what they're paying for? And maybe... A tangential question is, do you find sponsored content demands a higher price on your blog or is it on social media?
0: To answer the first question, yes, that's what they're paying for. So also, a lot of times they'll ask for like a product placement within a photo. So it's like a different version of American Idol where they're all drinking Diet Coke. It's like, eh, I don't know if these are all people that drink Diet Coke, but they have the you know, Lipton iced tea or Diet Coke cups. (laughs) because it's product placement and so people are exposed to it and they can't directly track that, but they know that it's it's positive to be exposed to people and to have that impression when people are reading the post. Also, the actual link is beneficial in that like here it is and here's where you would buy it. Obviously, it's not SEO because it is no follow, but it's just another way to promote that product within the post. In terms of blog versus social media, it depends on who it is. So for us, we have a strong emphasis on the blog, as well as Instagram. And that's just because that's where we have the most traction. It's also because Instagram is the strongest platform right now in terms of getting consistent engagement. Facebook fluctuates. Twitter's not very beneficial. Pinterest is a little bit abstract. I would say YouTube, if you're a really good YouTube personality, that would probably be another one where you'd be able to get consistent engagement and would be able to get sponsored content for that. We don't do that quite as much. So We don't have that. But for us, yeah, brands would really be focusing on the blog as well as social media, specifically Instagram. And within that, the sub point of that would be we really like working with brands within Instagram because it's a little bit more scalable for us. We have a team that's able to produce videos. So Lindsay will work with them to pick a recipe. They can produce that video. And then Lindsay will write the caption for that. And that's not quite as intense as doing a blog post. And it's, in a lot of ways, just as beneficial for a brand. So we split sponsor content between the blog and Instagram, probably a little bit more so on Instagram right now. And so who's doing the handshaking? How do you find people?
1: How do they find you? I know there are platforms you can sign up for to yeah. help people connect with you or to help brands connect with influencers and vice versa. You're also a huge blog now. So, and you know, maybe sponsored content became more popular when you were bigger. But for you... How do people find you?
0: Yeah, so for us specifically, it's inbound now. We're not doing any outreach. It's brands coming to us and us, number one, saying, is this gonna be a good fit? And then having a conversation with them around like what our sponsored rates would be. In terms of when we first got started, we worked with an agency. So there's an agency at the time that did kind of the middleman between brands and a blog. It was called Sway. At this point, they have shifted to focus almost entirely on massive sway, which is like, it's a bigger pool of content creators and then smaller contracts for those content creators. They used to have a division, which was like more of a hands-on higher level network, but they have shut that down. So those agencies do exist and they're out there, but we've found it's been much more beneficial for us to handle that internally, to manage that process on our own. And we have somebody on our team that helps with that. Her name is Jenna and she's awesome. And she handles a lot of that. So Jenna will work with Lindsay to kind of filter through and say, is this a good fit or not?
1: And so people are emailing you and saying like, hey, can we see a media kit or do you have like a
0: sponsor post page on your site? Yep. Yep. So people are coming through the contact page. A lot of the brands we work with now are people that we've worked with in the past. So we have continuing relationships and we're able to do more of a ambassadorship, not necessarily strictly speaking like that we would only work with them forever, but we're able to say, hey, let's work together for six months or a year, and we'll do four blog posts and six videos and put together a package like that, as opposed to saying like, hey, we'll do one video, and how does that work? We're just really trying to focus in on having long-term relationships now. But yeah, in terms of what it looks like, somebody would come to us and they'd go to our contact page and say, I'm interested in working with you. We send them to a type form, Page that kind of walks them through what their interests are i think at the end it asks for what the budget is and then we i don't know if this is for sure or not but i think we have like higher numbers on that to kind of filter people out that would be like hey we just want to work for a product exchange like well you know we kind of have a cutoff for that and not that you shouldn't do that and we did that at one point but at this point we don't and so we filter them out through that if people are still interested and if they have a budget that makes sense, then we move into the stage of having a conversation with them.
1: And what sort of price can you command for a sponsored post? Or what yeah. price could one command for a sponsored post? I don't know how many other entrepreneurs you talk to about it or whatever, but maybe what's the general ballpark if sure.
0: some of our audience wanted to try it? Yep, sure. So again, disclaimer with any of this, it really depends. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we're doing a actually a sponsored content bootcamp tomorrow. So that'll be after this podcast comes out. But one of the things that we did for this little boot camp, it's like a summit, is we interviewed somebody who is used to work for this company called Fitfluential, which was like an agency that would do the middleman negotiation for brands. And one of the things that she said was, you can use your engagement metrics for a post or social media to help price what that post should be. And for engagement metrics, she said, And with any of this, there's a huge disclaimer that it depends. But like an engagement metric could be likes and comments on Instagram. So if if you post something to Instagram and you get 1,500 likes and 100 comments, you could use $1,600 as a baseline for where you can get started for sponsored content. Again, that's super, super loose, and it depends on a lot of different things. Obviously, it'd be much different for video, and it depends on how much time and energy goes into it. But I would say for blogs that are that have the type of following that Pinch of Yum has and from people that we've talked to, I would say that you could go for a single piece of standalone content, maybe a video or a blog post. It wouldn't be unheard of to go in the five to $10,000 range. And there's people that are across the board on where they land with that. Some people don't do any ads on their site, so then they charge a premium on sponsored content. Other people are just getting started in sponsored content and don't have their content calendar very full, so they're willing to charge a little bit less. And then there are some people who have so many people coming to them that they can just continue to ask a premium on it. And if a brand accepts it, great. But if not, then they know that their calendar is already full. So they're, they don't have to make uh, room in order for that sponsored content.
1: And once you reach an agreement, what's the process? Are you creating the content? Is there some sort of deal there? When do you publish it? What does a logistic workflow look like after someone wants to pay you for some sponsored content?
0: Yeah. And you really have to be intentional with this because one of the biggest issues in working with a brand or a PR agency is that there's miscommunication on what the deliverables are. So when you're doing a contract, you need to really clearly lay out what are the deliverables. It's one video, and the video is going to be posted to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And the blog post is going to have two links to your site, and there'll be one photo that includes the brand or the product and really clearly laying that out. Because if you don't, you're going to have a lot of back and forth with the brand, potentially, not always, depending on the brand or the agency coming back and saying like, oh, could you put a couple more links in at the bottom? Uh, it would be really great if we could get some links to our product page and our Facebook and our Instagram and our Twitter. And so clearly laying out those deliverables is important. and You do that in a contract. And then in terms of the back and forth, the basic steps would be you'd create the content Depending on the negotiation you had with the brand, they might have some rounds of revision where they'd, you'd send it to them. They would come back and say, actually, can you capitalize the name of the product? Or can you not mention cashews in this? And they'd give you a little bit of feedback. Again, that would be part of the negotiation. You want to make sure that they're not completely taking over and just crafting the content on their own, but it's your voice that they are then maybe saying, hey, we need to change a few of these small things. So you'd go back and forth with them, you'd post it. Usually what will happen then is you let that ride a little bit and then you'd follow up with some metrics and say, here's how many people, if it's a blog post, viewed the blog post, clicked on the link, you can use Bitly to track that. If it's social media, you can obviously grab those stats pretty quickly in terms of impressions and engagement. And then you follow up with the brand and say, hey, here's how the post performed. Here's what you got from the relationship and from this specific sponsor content.
1: And to make it a little bit more actionable, what is, say, step number one for someone who's maybe in the smaller and mid-range or someone who has a fairly large following but has never done sponsored posts? What's step number one, maybe if they want to go out and get it?
0: Yeah, I would say put up a work with me page on your site and lay out a way to get in touch with you. And also, if you've had any previous sponsor content you've done, you can link to it there. If you haven't done any sponsor content before, it probably doesn't hurt to start including some of the brands within your content without getting paid and reach out to them and say, hey, just wanted to let you know, I included this in this blog post, love what you guys do and love your product. And to not pitch somebody, right? So it's it's like any relationship where you want to wait a little bit and be strategic and intentional about the human element of it. Like you, You never ask somebody to marry them after you know meeting them for one time. Like there's, There has to be a relationship there before there's a contract. So to wait a little bit on it. I think the other thing that would be beneficial is to, even if you're not using certain products within posts or content that you're doing, to just start a relationship with the people that represent the brands that you're interested in. And I think you can do that via social media. Just start having a conversation. With any of these, it's always a human on the other end. And It's easier to think about it as human interactions and brand interactions. Is it even
1: worth it for small bloggers? I mean, how much money can you make with a post that gets a couple hundred views or a thousand views?
0: I mean, I think it depends on worth it, right? So like worth it for me is different than worth it for you is different than worth it for somebody who's been blogging for two weeks. I think for people that are just getting started, the idea of earning $100 from a blog post is really exciting. And for other people that have been doing it for 10 years, it's like they wouldn't even think twice about doing that. So I think it also depends on where you're hoping to build your site into. If you're hoping to build it into a site where you work with brands, you do sponsor content, you want to do influencer marketing, when you're in those early stages, it probably makes sense to, even if you're not getting paid a lot, to build up a portfolio. So the worth it piece maybe isn't in the dollar amount, but it's in refining your craft and then building a portfolio that you're then able to present to people as you build it. So the immediate payoff might not be huge, but long-term it would be worth it. Bjork,
1: thanks so much for being with us. I know you have a bunch of cool projects going on and I know we have some food bloggers in our audience. So I wanna give you some time here to plug the stuff that I've seen from you, but that other people may not have seen yet. So please have at it. Sure,
0: yeah, appreciate it. For those that are interested in some of the income reports that were mentioned, you can go to pinchofyum.com. We have a little area that's just income, a link there, and you can look through all of our income reports. Not doing them anymore, but you can look back at our story if you want to dive deep. Every once in a while, I get an email from somebody and they're like, hey, I just went through all of the income reports. It was super helpful. So you can check that out. Food Blogger Pro is the membership site that we have where we have over 2,500 people that are part of that and they're learning how to grow, monetize, and build a beautiful food and recipe blog and not all food bloggers. It's probably 75%, 75 to 80% food bloggers, and then a whole hodgepodge of other people. And then we just launched a plugin. The site's called WP Tasty and the plugin is called Tasty Recipes. So if you have a food or recipe site, you want to make sure that you're marking that up in a way that Google understands it as a recipe. And we created a plugin for that called Tasty Recipes. It's the one that we use for Pinch of Yum. And we're really excited to offer that as a plugin for people to purchase.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for all of you guys out there. Please let me know what you think of AdThrive and other sorts of ad optimization platforms and plugins. Let me know if you're using sponsored content because I haven't and I want to hear from you guys to see how it's going. Bjork, thanks so much. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys next time.
0: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it.